Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Judges chapter 6. The book of Judges chapter 6, we're picking up where we left off before the Advent season. Let's hear the Word of God. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizite, and uh, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We humans were in the beginning made by God for God. That is, we were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. By virtue of that, we were by nature hardwired for worship. That is, to seek, to follow, to value, to adore God. But since the fall, we have developed the habit and inclination to make lesser things, that is, created things, 
ultimate. John Calvin once wryly noted that the human heart is an idol factory. That is I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E, though the second is perhaps more common today. But the heart is an idol factory. We make up things to follow, things to worship, things to make ultimate other than God. And sadly, this is true even of God's people, Israel and the church. We have a tendency to latch on to just about anything other than the one who alone is worthy of our worship. The main subject of this book of Judges is that God is king and that his covenant people, his Israel, regularly from time to time through their history, wander from him. They're attracted by or, or moved by the, 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 the nations around them, the people around them, the world around them. And the story of this book is quite a simple story. Repeated sin brings its own consequences. Actions have consequences. If your will and your act is to do sin, that will have consequences in your life. Not because God is hard and cold, but because He loves you enough to let you see the results of your actions so that He can then redeem you, bring you back into fellowship with Himself. That's what He does for us. I think we regularly need to remind ourselves of the words you find in Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, He chastens, He disciplines. He disciplines those He loves. He's not disciplining the world and people in the world and people who have no love for God. He's dealing with His own household, His own people in this way. Now, in this particular regard, Israel had had a history with Midian. Moses, the great prophet, had married into the tribe. His wife was a Midianite. The people of the Midianites were therefore welcomed to join Israel when they journeyed on the exodus out of Egypt and into the wilderness in the way to the promised land. Even while they were making the journey, the Amalekites attacked Israel. And they, they attacked regularly at regular intervals, and it wasn't long before the Midianites, who were accompanying the Israelites, began to side with the Amalekites and eventually join them as enemies of God's people. So there was a kind of broken relationship in the background to this story. This time the oppression, however, took a different form. We've seen in the earlier chapters uh, oppression taking the form of armies, in array, moving as armies move, uh, and so on, in, an, in, in a regular way, in a regular methodology, uh, in attacking Israel. But here it's changed. Here it's different. This time it's not so much an army as a, a kind of mass of people, not, uh, not so much concerned with occupation and conquest, uh, as it was with Moses and uh, sorry with Moab and, and Canaan in the day, in the days of Ehud and Deborah, this time it 's to lay waste to the land. They were making these random attacks to plunder Israel and destroy their crops and steal their cattle uh, 
or then or slay the cattle and eat it themselves. So many enemies, so much damage, and it left the people exhausted. It didn't matter what they did. They were living in caves and dens which they had dug themselves, hidey holes away from uh, the, the roads so that they could store their stuff there. But even there, even when they used the rocks on the top of the mountains to build a stronghold, they were overcome by the sheer numbers of the enemy. They were overwhelmed, literally, by them. Now, it's very interesting to read the catalog that you have in those opening verses because they echo things that we've read earlier on in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God warns them, you shall build a house and not live in it. That corresponds to them having to abandon their houses and hide in caves. You shall plant a vineyard, but not enjoy its fruit. That was worked out in these enemies coming and and, uh, looting their produce, taking it away. Or again, you shall, your ox shall be butchered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Can be uh, compared to the attack on the fodder and the livestock. And again, in Deuteronomy 28, a people whom you do not know shall eat your fruit of your ground and of all of your labors, reflected in the numbers of invaders who came. So these were tough times for God's people. And anybody who knew their Bible would see that these things had been predicted by uh, the Holy Spirit giving the message to Moses and enshrined in their Deuteronomic laws. These were the effects of their wrongdoing. Well, what was God going to do about it? Had God forgotten them? Was God going to send a Savior? Well, that's not quite what's going to happen immediately. And so these three characters come onto the stage. An anonymous prophet, a mysterious angel, and a cautious, perhaps overcautious, servant. Let's look first of all at the anonymous prophet. Listen as I read this passage. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Here they were in desperate straits. They're crying out to the Lord because they're being invaded regularly by these people who are stealing their stuff so that they're hardly having anything to eat. Life is terrorized by these people. You expect God to do something. What do you expect him to do? Send an army like he did earlier. Or raise an army even. Or an armory. Some tactical missiles would be good. Some tanks with, uh, that, that are able to project their, their weapons some long distance. That would be fantastic against the Midianites. But God doesn't do any of those things. He sends, of all things, an anonymous minister, a preacher of the Word of God. You see, in periods of difficulty, seasons of adversity or oppression, are precisely occasions that profit from good sermons. Sometimes only vexation, guilt, 
trial are the only things that get our attention enough for us to listen to the Word of God. What the people needed and wanted was a deliverer, a savior. But God sends a prophet, not a wonder worker, but a wordsmith. Very often in our lives too, we want rescued or released from something. We want to get out of a mess we've made for ourselves perhaps, or out of some trial we're having to endure, a physical perhaps, or emotional or mental trial that we we have. We want immediately released from that. We want action from God. We want God to do something for us. Sometimes we come to church, and uh, in the confusion of life, what we want to hear from the pulpit is we want to be told step one, two, three, four, and you'll resolve the problem. You can get over it that way. We want something to do. We want action. And yet God very often says in Scripture, He teaches us that what we really need is very often not action. We need understanding. We need understanding. I wonder if these people, for example, looked back at their history and saw that when they cried out to the Lord, He had sent a Savior like Ehud and Deborah and Barak. How disappointed they must have been when this anonymous theologian turned up. Now, he's unnamed, and I think that's entirely appropriate for his role. In every age, we human beings tend to want celebrities. Human beings like us, whom we place, in whom we place undue confidence, to whom we give far too much praise, and who therefore we put at risk of great, a great fall. That's why when Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's talking about the appointment of officers in the church, he says, don't let them be young men or women. Don't let them be young to, to take the role of an elder in the church. Elder, it means elder. Why? Because they may be puffed up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil, he says. This man is unnamed because he's a vehicle of the Word of God. That's all. He has a message to deliver. Once he delivers it, he can retire into insignificance. He does not matter. He is a vehicle, an instrument. That's all he is. That's all a minister is. Best that he be unknown and die, having delivered the word that God has given for you. Well, this man does what he's called to do. He delivers the message. And what was that message? I know what the message was they would have liked to have heard. God is going to send a savior, a superman or woman to save you. That would be great news. On the other hand, perhaps it would be a more negative message. Maybe they were afraid that the man was going to say this to them. God is so over you people. He really is. And he's just going to bow out and leave you to the consequences of your own actions. But neither of those was a message 
This is the message that he gives them. He reminds them of God's actions in the past. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all of those who oppressed you. I drove everyone out before you and gave you this land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What does a prophet do? He gives them understanding both of who God is, of what God has said, and of how they have responded. He reminds them of the good news of the heart of the covenant relationship with God, that He was their creator, He was their savior, He had rescued them, He brought them out of bondage and slavery by a mighty hand. That was great news. That was gospel for these people. But that only brings into sharper relief their current apostasy. They'd been told not to fear the gods of the Amorites. The word fear there is a word that comprehends everything you can imagine, like worship or awe and wonder at them and and be amazed by the gods of the Amorites and what they can do. And, And then engaging in the practices they did in order to honor the gods of the Amorites. How easy it is to do that. I want to give you an illustration. It's my own opinion, and it's not the opinion of this church or its session. It's my opinion. Send your hate mail to me first. Address it to Carol Wynn. uh, uh, (laughs) Seriously. So I, I spent, this year I'm 50 years as a minister, and a long time ago in my younger days, in Scotland, uh, we started to introduce into our worship contemporary worship music and uh, a band. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest regrets I have in my life, actually. Not because I don't like listening to contemporary songs, worship songs. I, I listen to them in the car. That's where they belong, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, so we had these young guys. The, the, the pulpit was eventually removed after I left, removed. The pulpit gone, a stage is put in place. The band is on the stage. These young guys who would like to have been rock stars but didn't have the talent are now leading it. And they're my friends, by the way, my friends. This is what I do to my friends. What would I do to my enemies? But, but I t- tell you, uh, and, and they, were, they were pretty good at what they did. They were pretty good at what they did. But do you know what we had done? We had moved away from how the church of Jesus Christ has worshipped from the time of the apostles to the middle of the 20th century and we'd abandoned the way the church of Jesus Christ worshipped. And we'd replaced it with a stage because we live in an entertainment age. And with a band 
acting as if they're on a stage. And the awe and wonder of God has been replaced. And why did we do it? In Scotland in the middle of the 20th century, we were scared we wouldn't be able to reach young people for Christ. Did it work? Church attendance is the lowest it's ever been in history. All the churches did the same thing. Presbyterian, Episcopal, Baptist, Baptist, Baptist. They they did it. They, They were the leaders. That's the way it went. There's a lesson in this passage here. Once we get afraid of the world and its success and then feel that the only way we can be successful is by imitating what it does, then we lose the blessing of God. In the UK, you would be hard-pressed to find churches like this church. Not because this is a perfect church, because the people who are members here, we know very well we're not perfect. But we do worship in a way that the saints in glory recognize as Christian worship. Well, that's what was happening here. They were making alliances with, they had made alliances with the world, and eventually the world had just gobbled them up. God gobbled them up. And this anonymous prophet draws their attention to that. Next up is this mysterious angel. The angel of the Lord came and sat. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. Gideon, like many another Israelite, had to hide his produce from the marauding enemies. That's how this supernatural being found him. He was beating out wheat in the wine press. The wine press is a solid uh, area. He was doing it to hide from the Midianites. In other words, this is an ordinary guy who's scared the Midianites are going to come and take away what is left of his harvest that he's hiding from them in the wine press and he's preparing to use for food. So this is the man that the mysterious angel comes to. And this angel represents the Lord himself. The infinite Lord is God, and God is the ground and source and context of every limited, finite state of affairs. In him we live and move and have our existence. He is the one being whose action makes every other action possible. He is the one who cannot be spoken of as one in a list of things, one in a list of forces active in the world. He is unique. All the finite agencies and uh, causalities of the world take place at the pleasure of and by the will of the infinite. The Lord God is above nature. He is supernatural, infinite. And yet in his dealings with natural finite creatures, he utilizes forces, natural forces, human voices, as well as supernatural forces and supernatural voices, such as this angel's voice. This angel is utilized by God to be his spokesperson, to act on his behalf. That's why he is identified with God himself in the story. 
Now, because of 20th century theology, the question has to be addressed, is this angel the Lord Jesus himself? That's a very delicate question and not one to be expressed carelessly. Why? Because the incarnation is a one-off. Jesus was not incarnate in anything else before he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was born in Bethlehem. It's unique. The, The incarnation is unique. It's unrepeatable. So in an absolute sense, you can't see the angel is Jesus, pre-incarnate. But what have I just said the angel is? Identified with God. And in the Old Testament, we see God in the unity of his person, not in the tri-unity of his person, of his being. The Trinity is represented in its unity. Therefore, the word Lord, the secret proper name of God, that's the word Lord capitalized in your version, belongs to God as God in the fullness of his divine life. What we will later discover in the Bible when it's revealed in the triune life of God. So this angel represents God as God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That will later be revealed to us by the incarnation of the Son, who reveals the Father to us and the Holy Spirit to us. We have to keep in touch with the time of the revelation that's going on in the Bible. Well, it was a revelation then of God in the fullness of his divine life, Father, Son, and Spirit that came to Gideon. That's the meeting. Then the greeting, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Those words, the Lord is with you, are spoken by angels in the Bible. It's spoken to the Blessed Virgin Mary when she's told she's going to have a child and that he's going to be the Son of God. Here, the words are used to encourage Gideon, to give him confidence that he's going to undertake a great work of God. But Gideon would have been surprised by the second part of the greeting, The Lord be with you, you mighty man of valor. We've seen that he's not a mighty man of valor. He's hiding in the wine press, threshing the wheat. He's keeping his head down. He's he's being sensible. And he's making provision for himself and his family as furtively as he possibly can so that it's not snatched from them. But you see, these words don't refer to any courage or fortitude that he possessed in himself. These words refer to the strength that God would later give him for the accomplishing of great things. In other words, when God finds you and me, he finds us in our weakness. We're obscure. We're, we're just human. We're not good at this or that, but we're really good at the other thing. But he finds us as he finds us and gives us his strength to do whatever you are called to do in your life, however great or small that thing might be. God delights to take us in our weakness in order to display his divine power in us and through us. 
I wonder if you're arguing with God about this. Maybe you, you're asking, well, I'm not ever going to do any great thing for God. There's nothing great spectacular in the kingdom of God that I'm ever going to accomplish. I don't need strengthened by God for anything that I can think of in my life. Seriously? What about that illness that may come upon you, or perhaps has? What about that great trial that may come into your life, in your family's life, that you can't anticipate at this moment? What about taking that stand at work, perhaps, or with friends in college, a stand for some ethical principle or perhaps for a spiritual principle? What about that difficult conversation you've been putting off, putting off, putting off, but you know you must have with someone that you love, that you care for? God provides the strength. He doesn't provide it now, by the way. He provides it when you need it. God does not give strength for anticipated illnesses or anticipated trials. He gives us strength in the trial, for the trial. Well, the third thing about this interview with this angel is the offering. Gideon takes the greeting seriously that he has to make sure he's not mistaken. The stakes are too high, you see. He's afraid to ascribe to the Lord, to take this as if it's God's word to him, He's scared to ascribe to the Lord something that is not of the Lord. That's why he asked the next question. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You ever ask questions that resemble that? You did marvelous things back then, but what of now? Of course, the answer had already been given by the prophet, but nobody listens to the preacher. Gideon, like everybody else, had not paid any attention. And it's at this point that the Lord, through his angel, reveals his purpose for Gideon. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours which he doesn't have, but he's going to have. Save Israel from the land of Midian. Do not I send you. He's being sent. The way Jesus sends out the disciples, as the Father sent me, so I send you, Jesus says to the apostles. He is saying, go out and do this great thing, strengthened with the might that God is going to give you. That's his commission. Well, we've seen the anonymous prophet, the mysterious angel, thirdly, the cautious, perhaps overcautious servant. Gideon hesitates at the size of the task. Look at verse 15. Please, Lord. By the way, he's, he's moved on. He said, please, sir, earlier on. He's now becoming aware that he's talking to God. Please, Lord. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, the tribe, and I am the least in my father's house. 
What's he doing? Well, he's confessing his own personal inadequacy and inability. Somebody who's all perky about their abilities and strength and all the rest of it and they're prepared to tell you just what they've done and how, how great they are is probably not a good person for God to use. They'll take it all to themselves and wallow in the glo- and, and shine in the glory, bask in the glory that goes along with doing a work for God. Now, this man is being very honest. He tells us that he is like the rest of Israel, very, being brought very low by circumstances, that he's the least member of the weakest clan of his own tribe, that he's not strong and mighty, and he has no self-confidence or natural courage. And you know there are parallels with Moses, another man of God that God used. When Israel was... Uh, Languishing in bondage and groaning and calling out for help, the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush and told him, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you, that you may bring my people out of Egypt. And Pharaoh immediately, Moses rather immediately responds, Who am I? Who am I that I should go? And what does God say to Moses? Certainly, I will be with you. What does God say to Gideon? I will be with you, that's singular. In the old English, I will be with thee, singular. And thou, singular, you shall strike the Midianites as one man. You'll do it like a one, you'll be the one man who will do this great work. And I will be with you. I'm going to say that's the, fun, that's the message I want to leave with you this morning. The beginning of this year, and as you look down into the year, knowing what you know about your family, your own health, the circumstances of the world, the nature of the way in which society is moving, and all of these other things that may be crowding your mind with questions at this time, I want you to know that God's Word to you today, on the basis of the Christmas message, is that God is with us. God is with us. I will be with you. I will be with you. When Jesus said to his apostles before he prayed for their consecration in John 17, in the earlier chapters, 14, 16, and he's talking to them about the fact that he's leaving them, but the Holy Spirit will come, and the Holy Spirit will be with them and in them. And then he says to them, and, and, and I will come, and I will be with you and in you. And my Father will come, and we will be with you and in you. In other words, Jesus is showing us that the Lord who spoke and used this angel is the triune Lord who comes to His people in in a sense of being orphaned and helpless and saying to them, I am with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I am with you. I want you to I want to end with this promise to you this morning. A promise testified to by the psalmist in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Jesus sends us out. What does he say? I am with you always to the end of the age.
May you prove that in your life this year, 2023. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and goodness to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we start this year and with this thought in our heart, you will be with us. May we prove it in our life and experience, we ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.